Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I suppose I spent about 10 years on battlefields. I spent two or three years in Vietnam, three or four years in Iraq, and now three years in Afghanistan. And I'm what they call a grunt. I'm a Marine combat infantryman, and I see everything from the frame of reference of being on a battlefield where you're trying to kill the enemy. A very good friend of mine, uh, Secretary, former Secretary of Defense Schlesinger, said, Bing, you got to stop that. Every time you go out, you turn off an audience when you say you go out to kill the enemy. You don't. You should say you go out to destroy the enemy. <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to, you know, I just, that's not true. Uh, it, you know, I'm definitely not going to say it. But war is the act of destruction of the other side, which is killing until the other side decides to do what you want him to do. It is nothing else. And if you leave, if, if you walk out of here and remember nothing from me, just remember those words. And that's all we train our young men to do. Everything else is secondary. I say all of this because I'm building towards something. And that is that there are two views of history. And the first view of history is the one that most of you are probably carrying here. It's the, mo it's the one that uh, both President Bush's carry, the President uh, Clinton carries, certainly the President Obama carries, etc. And that is that things happen from the top. Once you get up there, you understand something, and you're up there, and you have your generals and your secretaries of state, and you talk to the, the head of some person like Karzai, and you work things out, and it all dribbles down. Um, government at the top, and government down. Baloney. Uh, there's another way of looking at this, which is Tolstoy's way under War and Peace that you're all required to read and none of you did, including me. And I only went back and read them over the last three years. And Tolstoy's whole history of War and Peace and the entire rise of Russia at the time of the invasion of Napoleon centered around the belief that it is the movements of peoples not the leaders that really counts. And if you don't have that surge of the people, the leaders count for nothing. And the smart leaders are the ones who get on top of that wave when it's breaking and just coast along with it. That's what I believe. And, and what I believe are a huge mistake in Afghanistan were those people at the top that became arrogant and conceited because they believed that they were presidents or generals uh, and they didn't have a clue what was going on and they lost sight of it because it seemed too easy at first. Now if that seems tough, that's what I say in my book and I try to point it out by going out there for three years in battle after battle after battle and then comparing it with what the people at the top were saying and it just makes no sense to me then and now. Starting and ending with our Secretary of Defense Gates who has moaned and groaned about us doing anything relative to to Libya because it, it's too difficult to do and saying that the Secretary of Defense should have his head examined for getting involved in a mainland war in Asia. Well, no, he shouldn't, Mr. Secretary. If you tell me that we're succeeding out there, and that's what you're now telling me, everyone should be congratulated because if we can get into a war in mainland Asia with the tiny number of casualties we're really taking compared to any other war, with a tiny number of, casual, of forces compared to any other war, with a tiny amount of budget compared to any other war and win, then by 
God, you should congratulate everyone who's done it instead of standing up there before your own troops and saying you should have your head examined. But he doesn't have the courage to say it because in his own heart, he believes that we're not really going to succeed. But he doesn't, then he comes out on the other hand and says stupid things like that. And that's what drives me crazy with the people at the top on this war, that they really have never gotten their own head straight about it. Uh, and, and what I try to show in the book time after time after time are the three things. And I call it the wrong war, grit, strategy, and the way out. Grit. Aristotle said that if, if a nation does not have courage, and if a person does not have courage, they have nothing. Because courage is that which enables all other virtues. I mean, think of that. I mean, I think it's really true. Anything we do in life that's tough is a choice. And, and often it requires that grit to make the choice. We're finished as a nation if we do not have a warrior ethos in the United States of America. We're finished as a nation if we don't have people who want to go out and kill the, the enemy, period. We're finished, but we don't have to worry about that. And that's the first thing I show in my book. The warrior ethos in our society is alive and well. And, and we have the mother of, of one of the young men with us tonight, and I'd like to ask her to stand for a moment and be recognized. Finn Corporal Cook's mother to please stand. And I am about to go out and rejoin her son, and we were just chatting about it, and, and he's a squad leader at a place, and, and, and a, at a place called Outpost Fires, which is eponymous for what they're doing. I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere, and I, I spent a wonderful two weeks with them a few weeks ago, and there's an article on my website called With the Warriors about it. And I thought, okay, here we are, and I'm talking to you, and one of you is the mother of, of one of the Marines that I've been out with and I'm just about to go back out with. As long as a nation has that kind of unity, and among us they come forward to be our warriors, I have, you know, the first thing I say in my book is, and I show time after time after time, I don't know where they are or where they come from. They're about one half of one half of one percent of the population, but they keep popping up. And no one can stand on a battlefield with them. When I was just out with her son, I woke up in the morning, and I'm way out in the middle of nowhere in a little cave with them. They said, come on, sir, we've got to get going. I said, where are we going? And they pointed to flags. I mean, flags. This, now, mind you, this is 2011. They're pointing at a flag on a fort. I said, what's, what's that? They said, that's, that's the Taliban flag. We're going to go get it. <laughs> yeah. And I looked behind, and they had raised the American flag. And then we started out. And their whole objective that day was we were going to go 500 meters and take that compound before the end of the day was out. The end of the day was out. We had killed four people. Um, and they had taken that compound, taken down the flag, and they said, here, sir, do you want it? And I said, you know, yeah, I'd like to have the souvenir, but you guys took it down. One of you keeps that. And then the next day they got up and they did the same thing. They're going to go out and take more, take more, take more. And that has nothing to do with the great objectives you hear at the top. That's the fighting man that we have. And I saw that all over Afghanistan. I've been pushing like mad for one man by the name of Corporal Dakota Meyer to get the Medal of Honor. And if he doesn't, I'm going to just raise holy hell. But it takes so long even to get one Medal of Honor, but I believe he's going to get it. And I try in the book to show that there's a strain that starts from the bottom up in the movements of peoples that we still have. We still have that worry ethos. And I go to the second part of my book is strategy. And I say, cuckoo, cuckoo.
school. Everything that these young men are doing at the bottom gets filtered out at the top in a way that it makes absolutely no sense because we have a, a high degree of trained, analytic, and hierarchical incompetence, including our general officers who go on to get advanced degrees and therefore have to write articles and therefore get promoted as a consequence of it. So we came up with the following, and see if you can make sense of this, including President George Bush 43rd, who basically started it, but it had a lot to do with our own concept. We went into Afghanistan with a quite clear mission. They had killed 3,000 Americans. We were going to get the people who killed them. But we let them get away and go down the other side of the mountain for reasons that still baffle me why we stopped at the top of a mountain and let them escape. But we did, as an entire nation, which is quite different than World War II, we didn't allow when the Japanese, after hitting Pearl Harbor, went across the international date line. Admiral Spruance didn't stop when he went into the attack in Midway because he had gotten to the international date line. He crushed them. We stopped on a mountaintop because there was this supposed border between Pakistan and Afghanistan and let Osama bin Laden and the Taliban escape. All of us as a country did that. Then what we did was, we, we were sitting there and we said, what are we going to do next? And the president said, well, I believe that everyone has a religious, God tells me that, that in man there's a desire to be free. I agree with that, totally. And then he said, therefore, we're going to help him be free and we're going to stay there. I thought, whoa. At that particular point, I thought, no, no, no. The president has now moved from religious beliefs to setting a political course that really doesn't make too much sense. Didn't make too much sense to me. But the, the, the generals all agreed. The Congress all agreed. And because of our goodwill as a nation, we stayed in Afghanistan after we had chased the terrorists out because we found an obligation to make them to build a nation. And we had a wonderful general, by the name of General Petraeus, who's now back in charge, who wrote a huge book that became the Bible for our army, saying, our soldiers are now nation builders as well as warriors. In my entire book, I say that's exactly wrong. God bless General Petraeus, and I like him, but that is really wrong. But we have done it for 10 years. And you know how we tried to do it? We said there's a social contract between us and the Afghans, between us and the Iraqis. The social contract is very simple. We, the American soldiers, will do two things. We will try to give some of you protection, even though somewhere among you is the mafia called the Taliban, who are your cousins, and we don't know who they are. But we're going to try to protect you from it. And we're going to give you 8 to $12 billion a year. And every single company commander has over a million dollars a year that he must spend. He has to hand it out. And you sit there and you say, hmm, that's cool, that's cool. And then and I say, now, your part of the social contract is that you ought to tell me who among you is in the mafia and who might kill you. And you ought to turn your backs on them. But we are not permitted to arrest them because we're Americans. We're not permitted to arrest any, any Afghan. And only one out of every 10 Afghans arrested by anybody among the Afghans ever goes to jail, and the average jail sentence is one year. So while we don't tell you that, if you betray anybody else in your group, the odds are whomever you betrayed is probably never going to go to jail. But if he does, he's going to be back among you in one year. But we can't do anything about that. But that's the deal. So what did the Afghans say to us? They basically said, this is a good deal. We'll take all the money you want to give us. And we will not change one bit. 
And every time I see a general or an admiral or somebody who just doesn't understand warfare like our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I cannot wait for that man to step down because he's just not, doesn't get it. He gets what a president says, but he doesn't get what his people say. Every time one of them says, we're there to protect the people, I say, you, you, know, you, you do not understand warfare, you do not understand what's going on in that country, and you have wasted 10 years. I hate to be that, that negative about it, but that's just a fact. We've, we've wasted a lot of time on this stupid concept that we could have counterinsurgency based on winning the hearts and minds of these people called the Pashtun tribes. 11 million Pashtuns. 10.9 million are hurtling headlong into the 9th century, and the other 100,000 are desperately trying to get into the 10th century. And we American Christians go over to these deeply Islamic tribes who speak an entirely different language, and we sort of say, we're from Washington and we're here to help you. And we have $8 billion. They say, hey, we like the $8 billion and we'll figure out the rest of it after you leave. So where I end up with grit, we really have it. Strategy was idiotic, and the way out is clear. We've declared, we, we're leaving. I guarantee you that this summer, President Obama and General Petraeus and Admiral Mullen, who's the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Secretary Gates, they're all going to declare victory. They're all declaring victory now. It's done. We've won. And now we're going to start to leave. And no one can disagree because we have no measures for this war. And the real war will only start after we leave when it really gets down to the Taliban versus Karzai and the people who are going to stand with him. And I am, I'm 50-50 on that. 50% of me says that Karzai is going to cut a deal that's going to cause us in about two or three years to say, what the hell did we do that for 10 years for? And the, and the other 50% is Karzai really doesn't get a chance to cut a deal and we muddle through and we end up with something like Iraq. But what I am on a campaign about is to make sure that people understand how well our people fight in the field and how well they are as fighters. Because we can have generals who come and go. The next generation of generals isn't going to have much good to say about this generation, just after they didn't after Vietnam. The battalion commanders coming up are going to look at some of these ideas and they're going to have the freedom to say those guys were stupid. But they can't now because there's still battalion commanders inside the system. So I'm not worried about that. That's yesterday's newspaper and it's gone. I think we're going to come out of Afghanistan about as well as we can. But we have to wash out of the system the notion that we can go anywhere as Christians and because we feel it a duty to say to a country, we'll bring you money, we'll bring you protection, and you, you give up those among you who are on the other side because that dog doesn't hunt. You have to win the war first and then the people come over. You can't expect the people to win the war for you. And that's my final message from that war before I ever speak about what I think we're doing about Libya. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dana? Yes. Thank you, Jay. Well, I'd like to take you on a journey with me to a different Afghanistan than that described by Mr. West. And it's a country whose 30 million people live mostly in rural areas and are working hard to rebuild their fruit and nut orchard, vineyard, woodlot, and other farm businesses. These businesses were the drivers of the Afghan economy before the 30 years of war decimated their land and their trees. 
These people are not at war or living in war zones, but their story is rarely heard or told by journalists who embed with the military and see Afghanistan only as a war, not as a country or a people. We read and talk mostly about violence, Yet some 85% of the violence is concentrated in only four of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. You have a map on the, um, on the sheet that, that's on your seats. And these are the same four provinces where USAID spends more than half of its budget. Looking at it another way, half of the violence takes place in only nine of Afghanistan's nearly 400 districts. Now, in 2004, Global Partnership for Afghanistan, which we call GPFA, began its work in Guldara, one of Afghanistan's most war-torn, devastated districts located about 45 kilometers north of Kabul city. It was the front line of the battle between the Taliban and the Northern Alliance. And today, Guldara, which means Valley of Flowers in Dari, is lush and green, a place where Pashtun, Tajik, and Hazara farmers are again farming their land in peace. My husband, I, and two Afghan-Americans formed GPFA after 9-11 to help Afghan farmers, women and men, rebuild their high-income farm businesses. These businesses provide attractive income alternatives to poppy cultivation and sustenance for their families. And our team of 180 Afghan staff provide farmers the technical and business training and materials needed to launch successful farm businesses. These higher incomes lead to better nutrition, to more access to education, less reliance on poppy cultivation, and a stronger investment in peace and security, and we've seen that going on. The greatest impediment from our perspective to economic growth and stability in Afghanistan is its lack of human capital in agriculture, governance, the police, the military, in every sector. Training and education take a long time, especially in a country that's lost all its human capital. So GPFA's largest training center, which is called the Tree House, is also located in Guldara. It's a complex of hundreds of farmer-owned nursery and orchard and woodlot, beekeeping, poultry, cold storage, and other businesses, irrigation alternatives, classrooms, and demonstration plots. And more than 300 farmers and agriculture students and government agriculture workers and our staff come to the Tree House every month for training from many many parts of the country, including Helmand and other areas that are very ripe with conflict. And what do they see there? They see their new possibilities for income and businesses that they previously couldn't imagine, especially the women. And I'd just like to give you as an example the women of Wardock. Wardock's on your map. It's south of Kabul. Um, GPFA has been working in Wardock since 2007. Last year, 15 rural women from con very conservative and security-constrained Wardock province traveled to the treehouse by bus to learn over a five-day period what GPFA's women farmers were doing and how they too could become entrepreneurs. Now our male staff said, oh, the women of Wardock would not come, they can't travel with male escorts, and the men would refuse them permission. But they came, and most came without escorts. And the result, now in Wardock, there is a network of rural women leaders to promote women's activities throughout the province. 
and, and in partnership with Wardock's Women Affairs Department, GPFA has since brought women from all of Wardock's nine districts to the treehouse to introduce them to a variety of farm business opportunities. So now hundreds of women in Wardock are replicating what they saw. They have vegetable gardens, they have tr- uh, greenhouses for production and training, they have underground cold stores so they can store their production over the winter and sell their produce when prices are higher, and they have woodlots for timber production, and these are owned by women. So these women are well on their way to defying the stereotype of Afghan women as subservient and at best secondary wage earners. Now water is critical to successful agriculture and it's in short supply and poorly managed in Afghanistan. And so our staff also works with local communities and farmers to improve irrigation techniques and to rehabilitate and reforest watersheds. These small scale projects, many of which are funded by provincial reconstruction teams and agribusiness development teams using the funding from the uh, Commander's Emergency Relief Program that that Mr. West uh, described, uh, they've had they've dramatically increased the amount of arable land available and thus the number of families who can earn income from their land. Now I agree with Mr. West that the Afghan people must do the work of nation building if it is to be effective and sustainable. And that's why GPFA also builds the capacity of the local institutions that service and train farmers and future agriculture professionals like rural universities and district governments. Our budget has grown from $150,000 in 2004 to $4.5 million this year. And through our small but growing organization, GPFA has proven that relatively small infusions of capital on the ground, strategically applied in partnership with local communities, can dramatically improve rural Afghans' livelihoods. So today we work in 450 villages in 12 provinces, and those are marked on the map. These are not, none of these are the four provinces where the majority of USAID funds go. And with the help of our Afghan staff, more than 15,000 families, about 100,000 people have built profitable farm businesses. More than 2,000 of these farmer entrepreneurs are women and their numbers are expanding every week as the demand for our project is so huge. And by this spring, our farmers will have planted almost 10 million trees in income generating and water conserving enterprises, most since 2006. And a good number of those trees, the hybrid poplars, were sourced in Oregon from a company named Potlatch. And what are the keys to our success thus far, despite all the challenges? Well, first, it's our 180-strong Afghan staff, of whom 40 are women, because women are needed to work with women farmers. They understand cultural nuances. They are trusted by local leaders and farmers, and they can work even in unstable areas without attention attracting security. Second, we meet with, partner with, and listen to local leaders and community groups in all of our projects. The local communities assure our staff security and mine and other directors and donors who frequently travel to our project sites. Our American executive director lives in Kabul. So contrast that to the large majority of organizations engaged in development in Afghanistan. 40% of their development funds goes right back out of the country through expat, highly inflated expat staff salaries and overhead, and still more of it never, need, never leaves Washington, D.C. 
Why have we focused on agriculture? Well, Afghanistan has 40% unemployment, and 80% of Afghans depend on agriculture for their livelihoods. So agriculture development is urgently needed. Without jobs and income, education is of little value, and peace is unsustainable. You know, in the 1970s, before the Soviet invasion, Afghanistan was known as the Orchard of Central Asia, and it was a major producer and exporter of dried fruits and nuts. Most of the world's raisins came from Afghanistan, and some 60 to 80% of its export income came from fruit and nut production. And we must help Afghanistan restore that income stream. Our government and others now recognize that economic growth and especially agriculture development are critical to establishing social stability in Afghanistan. But insufficient resources have been allocated to development. $500 billion has gone into military spending over the last nine years, and we've heard about, certainly, Bing's perspective on its effectiveness. Only $39 billion has been pledged to development, and more than 60% of that, 60% of that has not been spent by donors or released. And of all that amount, only $400 million has gone into agriculture. So instead of focusing military efforts where they don't want us, I think we need to focus development efforts where they do want us, where the Taliban have limited appeal and the population wants development, which from our experience on the ground is almost everywhere. Our experience is that local security can address the Taliban. If you give people a stake in their own future, it strengthens their resistance to criminals and insurgents and undermines criminal activity. So if we recalibrate our approach to building local capacity, meaningful, sustainable economic development is possible. And to, but to achieve that, we have to abandon our top-down, and I agree with being there, our large contracts, central government focus, the, the focus that we have the answers. And we must instead stimulate local leadership and entrepreneurship by engaging and mentoring local players. And in our case, that's Afghan farmers, community leaders, agriculture experts, and agriculture officials. There is a dynamism in Afghanistan, growth and a very entrepreneurial spirit, and Afghans are working hard to rebuild. We abandoned our Afghan ally, ally twice after they drove out the Soviets and enabled Pakistan to install a brutal regime that led to September 11th, and when we diverted needed military and economic resources from Afghanistan to Iraq. And if there's one lesson that we should have learned from Afghanistan's ouster of the Soviets, it's that a military victory is meaningless unless it's combined with programs to educate, nourish, and empower the citizenry. And I think now is the time, and maybe here is the place, to reorient our discussions in the media and among policymakers to distinguish between military and economic interventions. Because I think if we allow Afghanistan to continue to be backward and unstable, subject to the whims of its neighbors, including Pakistan, that that's just not a viable option for American or world security. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Well, we've heard two very interesting perspectives uh, and uh, on the current situation in Afghanistan. In fact, there's a very famous story that I was reminded of when I was listening to uh, Dan and Bing talk about uh, President Kennedy, who sent two people to Vietnam in the early 1960s. Both of them came back. One said, it's, we're doomed, the situation is hopeless, and you know we've got to get out of there. One said, it's not so bad. You know, We can probably uh, you know, salvage it. Kennedy looked at him and said, you both visited the same country, didn't you? So I mean, you know, he really understood. You know, this shows you the complexity of what you're dealing with in a country like Afghanistan, which is not just you know one particular region or not one particular area, much in the same way that uh, Vietnam, uh, you know, Vietnam was as well. But let me just start, if I can, before we get into the questions. I want to follow up on a couple of things to start the discussion here. Both of you stressed that uh, the bottoms-up approach was uh, was something we needed to focus more attention and effort on. Something that's very difficult, obviously, for a government to do. Um, and and being, if you could address briefly what, how we can do a better job perhaps than we have been, or what can we do to accelerate the movement toward helping the Afghan military and security forces become more effective as a way to help. And then Donna, if you might, you might as well follow Bing with a brief uh, kind of comment on what we can do as the United States to facilitate the development of more programs like yours, since it's clear that the AID approach, top-down, bureaucratic heavy, has not, uh, has not worked well. I'd just like to start that off and then we'll open it up to questions. I conclude my book basically by saying we should get out. We should reduce our forces dramatically. We should reduce the money that we're giving in handouts because we've created an entire culture of entitlement that is identical to LBJ, Lyndon Johnson's culture of great society and war on poverty, which ruined an entire generation of, of uh, inner city African Americans because they began to believe that they were simply wards of the state. and. The problem with doing that in Afghanistan is they become wards of Karzai who has no money because it's all our money and we're leaving and the first thing the Congress is cutting is all that money. So when I look at this and ask what can we do as we walk out the door, and let me say it one more time, it's over. It's done. It's finished and we have declared victory and we are leaving. That's what Obama is going to do this summer. Gates is leaving within a month. I don't believe there's a chance that General Petraeus is going to stay over this summer. And fortunately, Admiral Mullen is finished as a chairman and has to get out of there in October. We're going to have new leaders except for one leader, President Obama. And I am absolutely convinced he's going to declare victory, the military is going to declare victory, and we are out of there starting this summer. And it's all just going to be the glide path. The problem that I see, if you ask me, okay, what do we do for the next couple of years, I recommend in my book, we stop this nonsense of protecting a population that doesn't need our population uh, protection and, and get back to fundamentals of trying to train the Afghan army before we leave to be able to stand up to the Taliban. The fighting's only taking place in a, in, in a short, only a few districts compared to all the districts, uh, and all the other districts are going to fall as soon as uh, the fighting's over in those districts. It's equivalent to Normandy. All the fighting was just happening in June of 44 along the beach. And once you won the beach, the rest of the country fell. This country's going to fall one way or the other. The Taliban are either going to surge in as we leave, or those who are fighting with Karzai are going to hold them off. The biggest problem I see that we can do nothing about at this point, Jay, is that we never 
did the commonsensical thing. Look, if you're gonna build a government, what do you do? You say to the people at the top, you need patronage all the way down the line. So people owe you, you owe them, you're all in this together, you're Chicago or Boston. It's common sense, or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party before it all fell apart. You know, you, it's, it's common sense. Oh, not us. We gave all the power to Karzai, and we didn't tell him we're going to hold any, any power whatsoever. We have no power. None. It just drives me crazy in that country. We cannot say one thing about anyone he appoints because we give him total sovereignty. And Karzai didn't have the brains to go out and build over the last 10 years a system of patronage all the way down to the districts so that people felt they had a stake in making sure that Karzai stayed in power. He just paid off people left and right, but he never did it systematically. So there is no patronage system underlying this whole thing on the Karzai side. And what really worries me is I don't know what keeps their army together. And the only thing I can recommend to people is look for the next couple of years, focus on making those soldiers better than they are now. But we can't really as Americans get inside what motivates them to fight when we're not there. And we failed, and we failed with Karzai, totally. And I don't trust, and no one trusts Karzai, including Karzai. So how this ends up, I think, is a coin flip, Jay, no matter what we do over the next couple of years. But we are going to declare victory. Now, I'll tell you the good news. If we just got back to saying the only reason we were in Afghanistan, much as the wonderful people, as Dana indicated, and we want to build their nation, if, by whole, if, I, if I say, okay, God bless you if you want to do it, but if I just focus on my national security, I'm only there because they killed 3,000 Americans, I can guarantee you they're not going to do that again. They're not going to use Kabul as a launching place to, to come after us. No matter what happens, you know why? Because our CIA has done a good job of putting in spies everywhere, I'll tell you, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Do you know that, that, that Al-Qaeda in Pakistan has one rule? No three Al-Qaeda together go to a tea house. That, that, that's how scared they are about, and, and they have good reason to do that. Our air is incredible. I've never seen anything like it. You're watching the Super Bowl from the blimp? Uh-uh. We're better than that. Everywhere. We can watch when somebody reaches into his pocket and takes out a cell phone and tries to hand it to somebody else, then we shoot him. Just like that. A mile away. So they know this now. They know that we have these magic eyes in the sky, and we do. Therefore, Jay, in my judgment, there's no way, because if you're going to take a major city, you have to mass. You can't just walk into a major city with a couple of people and say, boop, boop, here I am. You have to get thousands of people together. Do you know the reason the, ride, the Taliban took power in the first place? It was because Pakistan gave them the, the arms, the ammunition, and the trucks. No way Pakistan is going to do that this time. So these guys are either going to be on their motorcycles, which is how they tra travel now, individual motorcycles. How many motorcycles can you put together? But if you do, every single aircraft we have up there is saying, woo, look at those targets I have. So so for two reasons, I believe we've achieved our basic objective. They are not going to be terrorists against us launching from Kabul because they can't take it. And they can't take it for two reasons. We have a fantastic spy network that will always tell us enough that we know where to look. And second, once we know where to look, they're finished. Beyond that, though, if you get to what Dana wants to do, or if you get to how good Karzai is going to do, those, to me, are bridges too far for me to go into. I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a bottom up, bottoms up guy looking at who's going to win a war. We've won our basic objectives, and that's as far as I want to go. Thanks, Bing. Dana. 
and I'm not a military expert, so I <laughs> know where I should not tread. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think what Bing says does raise a lot of questions. What are, our, what, were, what are our objectives? What should be our objectives? And I think there will be different, you know, perspectives on that issue. But in answer to your question, Jay, you know, what do I think the government can do better in terms of more effective delivery of economic um, assistance to Afghanistan, again, to build Afghan capacity to, um, to run their country and, and have a viable economy? I think one of one of the problems is, um, you know, they have to, the funds have to. First of all, the U.S. experts, the USAID staff, the, the the U.S. Department of Agriculture staff, those who were deployed to Afghanistan, they serve nine-month terms. They turn over. They're not from there. You don't have the expertise within USAID that you had 10, 15 years ago. So they come over and and. Contracts don't get signed, and audits get done, and nothing happens. And you know, when you're you're working, we're working. You're working with a rural economy and an agriculture calendar, and there's a planting season, and you're applying for a grant or funding to accomplish a certain amount of things. Again, working with local communities, and the staff turns over, so you have to wait another year. So it's that those kinds of staffing issues are key. And I've talked to people in Washington about that, and I really, quite honestly, despair that they can do much about it. There also should be more of an emphasis on multi-year grants and multi-year funding. Right now it's, you know, one-off type funding and no planning and no broad strategizations. The other, and I guess the third, uh, the third piece of it all is that we have been so focused on building a central, a strong central government in Afghanistan, and in that area we have failed, which was so countercultural for Afghanistan a country where it was the local leaders, the local tribal leaders who not perhaps in the democratic, purely democratic way that we like, but effectively built consensus where the decision makers and 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 had the power to help the people and work with the people. And I think we should focus more, which is what we're doing, on building capacity of local governments, district governance, governors, sub-governors, and the local institutions that the people really do uh, deal with. Dana, thank you. Um, let's go to a couple of questions if we can here. Yes, right down here. Hang on, we got a microphone we'll bring down here for you soon. To Dana, uh, isn't it true that uh, the warlords, the local warlords, siphon off a lot of the money that's coming from the United States to rebuild agriculturally in the in the uh, uh, in the country? I, 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 that's what I hear. Um, the only thing I can tell you is that, uh, and, and, I, and I think you know, there's there's been a lot of money that's a lot of the money that's been allocated to development. I have heard has been siphoned off not by the not only by the local warlords but also by the contractors who we have contracted with to 
in, in different ways to um, to undertake development projects. So yes, there's been that going on. I can tell you based on our experience in 12 provinces, we have not, we have confronted isolated incidents of um, attempts, demands for bribes, um, which we have declined. Um, in one instance, the uh, the agriculture administrator of a province that we had worked in demanded a bribe from us in exchange for a new grant to continue working in that pro- province, and we were working with women. We said no. We said we're going to close our office. We closed our office, and several months later, we were approached by the uh, officials in the government to come back and, and resume work. So, you know, we haven't, con- we confront bribery more at the federal level, bribery issues and controls in the ministries in the federal level than we do in the local levels on which we work. But I mean, that, you, you read the same reports that I do, but I just don't have firsthand experience with that or knowledge of that. Other questions over here? Hang on just a second. Thank you. Uh, Diana, a lot of applaud what you're doing over there. It's wonderful to help them at the grassroots level. What has been your uh, experience or knowledge about the the people that you have gotten to do the rural programs and, and to do the uh, farming and so forth? Have, have they not done any before, or were they raising poppy before for opium, or you know, were they raising something else, or just expanding? I mean, because I've heard an awful lot about a uh, humongous increase in the uh, in the uh, poppy seed um, crops over there during the. 10 years we've been there. Well, you know, uh, first of all, uh, in the areas where we have worked, and you can see on the map where that is, sort of the south central and up into the north, there has not been... there's not been much in the way of poppy production. So that wasn't, that has not been an issue where we've worked. We have, however, I have sat with shuras, which are the councils of elders, in Logar province and in Paktia province when we first went in there to work with them. And they said to us at the time, this was in 2004 and 2005, they said, you know, the money, the assistance is only going to poppy producing areas. And if it weren't for GPFA's assistance, to help us jumpstart these businesses, we would have to resort to growing poppies in order to attract aid to, 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 to discourage us from doing that. So that's, that's one answer to your question. The other answer is in terms of the farmers, you know, most of the farmers and many of the farmers were refugees, were living in refugee camps in Pakistan and, and Iran. And they, were, they returned in 2002, 2003, 2004 to lands which they own. And we're talking about small farmholders half an acre, maybe an acre of land. Um, and so they they come from farming families, but the knowledge was lost. They had one older farmer told us, he, he called us in to thank us for what we had done for him in, in, in helping him restore his fruit orchard. And we said to him, oh, well, you, you're thanking us for the trees? He said, no, the trees are very nice, the saplings that you've provided, they're good quality. But your staff taught me how to graft. We had forgotten how to graft which is an age-old tradition that's been going on in Afghanistan for, for centuries. So these are people whose livelihoods, you know, traditionally their families came from farming families, but much of the knowledge had just 
bypassed this generation. Can I have a follow-up, please? Yes. Question. Um, you mentioned that a lot of our assistance money have been going into the poppy, poppy raising area. So we have continued to to uh, propagate that those crops in those areas. Well, no, but it's gone into either eradication efforts or attempts to develop alternative livelihoods in those areas. You know, as I mentioned, um, uh, that uh, fifty percent or sixty percent of the USAID budget goes into four provinces. These are the four provinces where the conflicts are the worst, Helmand and, and in the south principally, and those are also the major poppy growing areas. Look, we don't care. We just don't care. The, the, where most of our money is going in the poppy areas, I wade through it. Um, so does Corporal Cook and everybody else every day. You just wade through it. You have nothing to do with it. Uh, it, it is a corrosive influence on a society that indicates the hypocrisy of the religiosity that claims that you're not supposed to do it. But in terms of what, what the Americans are doing down there, they have, if you will, the bigger fish to fry, they're fighting the war, and, and we basically tell all the farmers, you, you, you're doing it, okay, go ahead and do it. But if we can catch anyone with, with more than what they have in their individual farm, then we'll try to send them away. But the idea of trying to eradicate it or, I mean, I get you story after story. We, we spend a lot of time, we just walk around huge, huge miles of it. And and it, it, it just exists, period. But my point, just, I'm sorry, just to, is that there's, a, there's an estimate that that just 6% of Afghans, of the, of the 85, 80 to 85 percent of Afghans who earn their livelihoods from from agriculture, just six percent of them are earning their livelihoods from poppy production. Now that's six percent, and that's a lot of money because they're probably earning a lot more than the others. But that's one thing, and the other thing, again, and I'm just trying to to stress this is you're talking about. A couple provinces today out of 34. You're talking about so so. I, I mean, when when Bing talks about you know that we were winning the war or we're leaving, I just urge us to think about um, these problems that he's identifying. I think are not endemic to the entire country and are, do not exist everywhere. Okay. Got a question back? Um, I was going to ask uh, when the sur surgeon Afghanistan began, we were told to expect a, a major battle for Kandahar. And uh, that was kind of the, we're going to root out the Taliban. That was the home of the Taliban. And we really haven't seen a, a major battle. I mean, I'm sure there is a battle going on, but nothing has appeared in the news. And I'm wondering, uh, should we look for that now that March uh, fighting season is returning? Or is Kandahar just, we're not going to fight the Taliban there? No, I spent all my time in Kandahar and Helmand and everything. Look, the, 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 the way the fighting occurs is very simple. You're out and, and everyone has about an acre of land. And on, at the end of every acre of land, there's a compound with walls about this thick. So, and this, this extends mile after mile after mile after mile with irrigation ditches. And embedded among them are the Taliban. And they all have motorcycles. And they work in gangs of two. Generally, there are two Taliban here, two Taliban there, etc. The farmers are their lookouts. They're called the Dickers. And as you go out, the farmers will call up and say, we see the American patrol coming this way. And then they'll shoot at you from over here. They'll shoot at you from over there. They put in these goddamn mines that'll kill you. You try to work your way through the minefields. You kill a couple of them, you kill a couple of them there, and the day's over. There is never any 
force that cannot be beaten by an American squad. There's no such thing as a battle. It doesn't exist. It's a myth in somebody's mind. It's not how the war is fought. They would last about one day if they did it. So it's all this little itty bitty stuff uh, in conjunction with the people, always in conjunction with the people. Every farmer knows who they are. Every farmer tries to stay away from where the bombs are, tries to let the Americans just walk where the bombs are. Maybe we'll clear out a couple of bombs if they threaten his kids. Maybe we'll show you where a couple of bombs are, but we'll never tell you who the Taliban are. And that's the, that's the way the war goes on. So we can roll in with our American forces, and absolutely we can push them out of Kandahar. There's no question about that. It'll never be a major battle. The question is what happens when we leave a couple of years later, and we won't know until we do it. So what the Marines are doing, are they winning in Helmand? Sure. If you, do, if you define it by every day we're taking more territory, absolutely. Um, and we'll never see a major battle. Never, ever, ever. Because I just explained, the air sitting up there, <laughs> any two of them get together, they are gone. And they understand that as well as we do. So when people say a major battle, there'll never be a major battle. We've won. We have basically won and it's going to be declared this summer, regardless of what happens. You can take that to the bank. Last question. Bing and uh, Dana, thank you very much. Uh, you described the Afghanistan that I know, uh, and I appreciate that. Semper Fidelis, Bing. Uh, if you would talk, both of you, to the efforts of women uh, in Afghanistan. Dana, you touched on it a little bit. Bing, uh, I'm, I'm interested in how are the female engagement teams doing in Afghanistan now. Uh, there was a major trend that appeared about a year ago that we were going to change a tide and being able to work with the locals there, the female engagement teams. I'm, I'm curious to how that happened. And then on the female side for the Afghanistan females, uh, Danny, you're, you're describing females in a different role than a, Americans traditionally understand. So if, if you to expand on that, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, it's been remarkable. Let me just tell you, when, when we first approached, when we first went to Guldara in 2003, my husband and I sat with the Shura, and we said, you know, what is your greatest need? And they said, um, restoring our fruit and nut orchards. Uh, we said there's one condition of our working with you and that partnering with you, and that is that women are beneficiaries of the programs, including the high-value businesses that they hadn't traditionally engaged in. They said fine, and the following year, in fact, they convened a women's shura, and women began to be engaged, and we began to hire female staff. They, they said the only condition is that females work with the women. In the 450 villages that we've been in, we've had the same, dis our staff has had the same discussion with the shuras, and in every single one of them, there has been no objection to women participating. Now, why is this? I think in part because in a lot of these areas, there are many widows and female heads of household as a result of so many men being killed, you know, brothers and sons and husbands being killed. And they are of the responsibility of the, of the, of the community to take care of. So it's a very practical economic um, consideration. And, um, you know, our approach, I mean, today is International Women's Day, and we are having celebrations in Wardock and Kabul of our women's programs, and it'll be on our website probably tomorrow, you know, some of the photos, but it's very, it's very exciting. Uh, 
women are coming together and being energized in a way that I never could have imagined. Um, I, when I went to Paktia a year ago, I met with the provincial parliament, the provincial shura, the head of the provincial shura was a woman, a young woman. Um, and you know, all, there are a number of women officials engaged. It doesn't mean there's not terrible oppression and problems, but our approach has been, you know, there are many women or women's organizations that are that are helping support and empower women in traditional handicrafts and the like. And our approach was we're not we're we're, we're helping to rebuild the livelihoods of Afghan families. And you have to change the attitudes of men. You have to work through the men with the men and get them to buy in if you're going to make meaningful and lasting change in lives of women. And so it's slow steps, it's baby steps. I could tell you many stories of successes that to us would seem not remarkable, but for Afghanistan are remarkable. And that's what we're seeing. Bing, Again, we went there to win hearts and minds. There was a divide there that was bigger than the Grand Canyon. We're dealing with rural people who are heavily Islamic. Listen to these mullahs. They're tribal. They treat their women in a terrible way. We very rarely see any of it. The only thing we see is when we never see it. We never see it. A family. I mean, you're not permitted to see them when you're out there. And you look through your, your binoculars, you look through your sniper scopes, so the snipers are always watching, and they'll basically say, hey, sir, the women do all the work. They're out in the field all the time. You know how we find the, the Taliban? We watch for the person who embraces somebody. And this is, this, is how, this is how we look at it, okay, soldiers and Marines. You watch for the person who comes into a group and embraces somebody. He's the outsider, because the other people don't have time to do that and don't do it. So he's the one you look to shoot eventually when he does something wrong. We can't do anything about how they treat their women, except we know, holy smokes, they're the first ones out in the morning, they do all the work, the men don't do that much work. And I have to tell you, this is an Islamist society from the top down. And we refuse, as Americans, even the United States Army, you know, General Casey, they do a 300-page report on this guy, Major Hassan, who killed 30 people. And they, they refuse to say that it had anything to do with, with believing in, in, in jihad or something. And that's a lot of, you know, that's, that's the extent to which we're trying to ignore facts that look us in the face. We're not going to make a big change in that society. But the people from the top are genuine. Islamists and they, they infect others and that's what infects the fighters and we haven't changed that either except to deny it exists so when you talk to me about how the women doing how the heck do we know how the women are doing but I guarantee you they're not going to be doing too much better after we leave than before we were there because we're leaving and once we leave it's going to be up to Karzai on the one hand or Mullah Omar on the other hand to see how this thing settles out not us and I don't think we're God bless Dana but I don't think we're going to be leaving too many Americans behind working once they don't have a little bit of the protection we're giving. And if you want to watch what the Congress of the United States is doing, the first things they cut, last week the Congress of the United States cut the entire State Department budget for, for Afghanistan. They're going to restore some of it, but it was $8 billion bucks, and I'll bet you they probably only give about $4 billion back. I saw us do that in South Vietnam. We're putting Afghanistan in our rearview mirror. That's what we're doing. <laughs> And we're going to suffer from it. It is, in fact, true. Thank you very much. Uh, we had a great discussion here tonight. Uh, that's the last word, at least uh, for, for, for right now. And again, thank you for coming out tonight. I'd like to extend my thanks to our panel members here for providing uh, us. 
For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.